0: Working on the problem of foreknowledge and free will. If God knew yesterday, what I choose today, I don't really have a choice today. Now I will briefly rehearse what the problem is and the solutions we came on Friday, and then we'll go on to new solutions today. The problem is this, when I make a free choice, I think, at least, that I have two or more alternatives open to me, and I have the power to choose each of them. Let's say two, A and B. I have the power to do A and the power to do B. Then I choose A. But I have the power to do B. Now, if God knew yesterday that my choice is A, if God knew yesterday that my choice is A, do I have right now the power to do B? Well, the power to do B now would mean I have the power to contradict God's knowledge. God's knowledge is already in history books. God's knowledge as of yesterday. Now, God's knowledge is infallible. Perfect. It's not even possible that God's knowledge should be wrong. If it's not possible that knowledge should be wrong, then it's not possible for me to do something that would make it wrong. So, it seems it's not possible for me to do B. Which means I don't have the power to do B. It means I only have the power to do A. I don't have the power to do B. Which means I only have the power to do one thing. Only the thing that he knew. Nothing else. Which then seems, means, that I'm not really making a choice between two alternatives. Because only one alternative I have the power to do. And I'm not really making a choice between two alternatives and I'm not exercising free will and I'm not exercising free will and I'm not responsible I'm not responsible, there shouldn't be reward, work and punishment. The whole thing goes down the drain. That's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. I saw what saying about God's knowledge makes the reality, the reality of what it is. Because he knows you're going to choose A, then how can you possibly do like But Just because he knows what you're going to do, it's an affecting decision to make that sure you have free free will. Well, okay, there is. This is one of the solutions that we didn't mention on Thursday, and there is a standard type of solution of this kind, um, based on work of Harry Frankfurt, um, and then um, applied to this problem as well. Uh, what he's saying is. I was going to skip this, but since he said it, maybe I will do it. What he's saying is this: I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase what he's saying now, and then I'm going to leave it. I'll come back to it in the afternoon because I don't want to do it right away. But since he said it, I want I want it to be on, on record. What, what the point here is? There are two different questions, and we should keep them distinct in our minds. One is, could I have done anything else? Yes. That's one question. The other question is, how did I do what I did? Did I do it on my own? Did somebody give me a push? Was I forced? Was I caused by some external power? Those two might not be the same question. And they might not get the same answer. They might be, as he's suggesting, that on the one hand, I don't have any alternatives. God's knowledge cuts off my alternatives. But on the other hand, he's not pushing me. He's not forcing me. He's not... Determining me. And so maybe, maybe you should still call it free will and I should still be responsible. That, well maybe I will elaborate this one now. I'll put the other one off for you. Since you said it, since we're into it. Let's think about this a little bit. Um, let me give you an example, which isn't quite right, but will communicate the general idea. This example is due to John Locke, one of the early modern English philosophers. I promised to meet you downtown at 5.30. In order to meet you at 5.30, I got to leave my house at 5 o'clock. But at quarter to 5, I'm in the middle of a fascinating, gripping book on quantum mechanics, and I just can't put it down. I want to find out how it comes out in the end, you know? And uh, the time is crawling along 5 to 5, 2 to 5. Shall I keep my promise? Shall I read the book? Two after five, I could still make it if I run. No, forget it. I just—I've got to finish this book. You know, I just—I just can't. Uh... So I read, you know. I read till six o'clock. Close the book. Um, with a sigh of pleasure and regret, <laughs> and then I decide to go out. So I go to the door. Oh, turn the knob, and I pull, and I discover that the door has been glued shut with molecular glue. I call the fire department. It takes them two hours to get me out of my house. Now I reflect. Gee, if at five o'clock I had made the right decision to go to meet you downtown, what would have happened? I still wouldn't have met you. I'd have been glued in. So I wouldn't have been able to meet you anyhow. And since I wasn't able to meet you anyhow, therefore, It wasn't morally bad that I missed the appointment. Because I couldn't have made the appointment. It wasn't an alternative. That alternative wasn't open to me to make the appointment. It was impossible. So therefore, I'm blameless. I don't deserve any criticism or censure or so forth and so on. Obviously, says Locke, that's a mistake. You do deserve to be censured. You do deserve to be criticized. It is morally a fault under those conditions. Why? Why? Because it wasn't the locked door that stopped you from going. True, you couldn't have gone. You couldn't have gone because the door was locked. But that isn't what stopped you from going. It had no effect on your stopping. You're not going. You did that all on your own. So what do I care if there's something out there that cuts off an alternative? If it doesn't interfere with you, if it doesn't affect you, if it doesn't push you, if it doesn't force you, then you have no excuse. Okay, now here you could say, sure, I'm, I'm responsible, and sure, I'm going to be criticized for it, because at least I made the decision. At least I made the decision. And the decision could have gone either way. Harry Frankfurt thought up a case where even decisions cut off. Here's Harry Frankfurt's case. There's this fellow Peter. I want Peter to tie his shoes, Friday morning at 10 a.m. I really want this badly, so badly, that Wednesday night, I and my friend, the master neurosurgeon, sneak into Peter's bedroom at midnight, and chloroform him, and my friend performs surgery on his brain. He opens up his head, and sticks in a little device, and he connects it to a bunch of different neurons in 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 Peter's brain. So that, when I send a signal from my computer, this device in Peter's brain will receive the signal and will stimulate his brain, which will force him to decide to tie his shoes and then tie his shoes. Ah, it's all set up. Nothing to it. All I have to do, Friday morning at 10 o'clock, is push the button. The button causes the machine, the computer to send the signal. The signal reaches the thing in his head. That stimulates his brain, and it decides to tie his shoes and ties his shoes. It's all set up. There's only one problem. Sending the signal is very expensive. It's a crazy secret computer, and it's very expensive. Ten million dollars. I'd like to save the money. And as a matter of fact, Peter from time to time ties his shoes all by himself. Without any push. So here's what I've done. I've set up cameras. Constant surveillance on Peter. I'm watching him. At 9.59, I'm watching him. Will he? Spontaneously. Bend, bend, bow down, bend down and tie his shoes or not. If he does, I save $10 million. Get my ticket to Takapoko. You know, I'm on my way. Or if not, then I press the button and I send the signal which causes him to decide to tie his shoes and he ties his shoes. Okay, now before I tell you the end of the story, I hope you can stay in the suspense. Right. Tell me. One thing's for sure. What's going to happen at 10 o'clock? He's going to decide to tie his shoes and tie his shoes. Either on his own or off the rest the button. So that's going to happen no matter what. There's no alternative. There's no out. There's no way out. There's no escape. He's definitely going to tie, decide to tie his shoes and tie his shoes. Well, there it is. in 55 seconds. Down he goes. There he goes. He's tying his shoes all by himself. Whew! Get my tickets. right? I saved the money. Understand, I'm sitting there watching the camera, my finger over the button. Will he tie his shoes? Will he not tie his shoes? And then he goes down. I take my finger away. Ah! I've won. He tied his shoes on his own. Now, is he responsible for tying his shoes? I mean, I didn't press the button, you know. He dyed his shoes as if I had never been born. His dyeing his shoes has nothing to do with me. I didn't interfere with him in any way. Says Frankfurt, seems obvious, that he is responsible because nobody interfered with him. Ah, he couldn't have done something else, so what? It's true he couldn't have done something else, but so what? The question is, how did he do what he did? Did he do it on his own, or did he do it through a push? Actually, of Hasselman has a case, very, very similar, uh, without the science fiction. But at any rate, Frankfurt argues that to be responsible is not a matter of having alternatives. To be responsible is a matter of acting on your own without a push. Now, if that's true, then God's knowledge is irrelevant. Because what does God's knowledge do? Now, let's rehearse the problem again. I have A and B. I think I have power to do A and power to do B. I do A. The critic says, Reflect. You didn't have the power to do B because God's knowledge cut off B." Frankfurt's response, I mean, he didn't use it in this context or other stuff. The Frankfurt response would be, You're right. I didn't have the power to do B. So what? I did A on my own. God didn't push me to do A. Didn't force me to do A. Didn't influence me to do A. I did A all on my own. And I'm responsible for it, even though I couldn't do it. This is another solution to the problem, because whether you call it free will or not, it doesn't matter. What really matters is, are you responsible? And since, in this case, we think, anyway, according to Frank, that you are responsible, the fact that you didn't have another thing open to you doesn't matter. But it's not really that you really had the choice, because let's say he would not, in that example, let's say he would not have gone down. Then he would have been. Then the button would have been hit. Right. So let's say, let's say I really wanted to do B, and I tried to do B, but then obviously got knows, and then I had to do A. So it's not really like I, I wasn't responsible. Yeah. Listen again. You've put together. Yeah. You've put together two descriptions, and I'm trying to keep them separate. Now maybe you'll have a reason to put them together, but uh, I, I want to hear a reason. One description is, did he have a choice? The other description is, no. was he responsible? Now I agree with you. He didn't have a choice. The argument maybe is maybe he's not responsible either. Maybe, but but Frankfurt has given an argument that he is responsible. But how do you know that that, he, that this action you cannot really differentiate? You can't tell the difference whether he went down on his own will or if the button was pushed. This yeah. is quite true. I, on the outside, can't know whether he did it because even, even me, the person who's doing it, doesn't know myself. Let's say so. What difference does it make? That's isn't it still I'm true? Why isn't it still true? I didn't know. I. I did I like like? think about what exactly what I for all you know it was against was, my will. Maybe. But so what? The, the, it, a fact does not depend upon our ability to discover it. There can be facts which, uh, you know, uh, let's take the, um, George Washington's motives in fighting the Revolutionary War. Now probably we can't today figure out whether it was really to get uh, freedom from Britain or to protect his plantation with his slaves or because He had a a girlfriend who wanted it, or who knows what, right? That doesn't mean there's no fact to the matter, because we can't figure it out. Presumably, he was a person, he had a mind, he had certain motivations, and they're lost. We can't figure them out anymore. What I want to know is what the facts are. If I'm not able to figure out whether the button was pushed or not, what difference does that make to the fact? If the button was pushed, I'm not responsible. If I did it on my own, without any interference, without any forcing, without any pushing, then I am responsible. Correct. You don't know if you're responsible enough. That's right. So, well, but, but there's no reason to think now that you're not. right? The fact that I don't know doesn't change the fact. Because you, each time you're doing it, you don't know, and never you to assume that you are responsible. Look, be, you might have a practical problem down the line, not knowing when to hold people responsible or when not. But in, in the fact of the matter, if no one interfered with you, if no one forced you, if no one pushed you, if you acted on your own. Why shouldn't you be responsible for what you do? That's, that's but right. no, that's all we want. That's all we want at present. Yeah. Doesn't this argument imply that God's knowledge is only based on what you choose? Meaning God, God God's knowledge is only his own is based on what you choose if you thought you were. Doing. That's a different. That's a different solution, and that's the one I wanted to start with. And that's a We don't need that for this argument. You don't need that. God's knowledge can be independent and absolute in ways that we have no way of, of understanding. I don't need to just to to commit myself as to how God knows what He knows. I don't need to do that. All I have to point out is give Him His knowledge and let His knowledge come off me. We can accept all of that, and just point out that He's not interfering by doing A. If he's not at the fear of doing anything, I'm not responsible for it. Anything, the, the, the basic idea here is, anything you do on your own, you're responsible for it. If you did it on your own, you're responsible. And now what we're discovering is, God's knowledge doesn't mean that, that I didn't do it on my own. I did it on my own. His knowledge only cuts off the alternative. That's the only reason to surprise. First of all, um, so we're, I think this is what he was trying to say, that we're assuming that God's knowledge doesn't cover the fact that he knows whether you actually chose yourself whether you were you made the decision or whether you are forced you, that's what you're implying in this case why in other words God doesn't know it because oh I see what's going on I'm sorry I'm sorry No, I'm, maybe I'm responsible for confusion here uh, maybe, uh, let me try to explain what the analogy is supposed to be Frankfurt's case with the transmitter in his head right, is uh, one case to make a point and God's knowledge has nothing to do with the transmitter in the guy's head God's knowledge operates all on its own It has nothing to do with the the tying of the shoes. The analogy works like this. In the shoe-tying case, Peter ties his shoes on his own. Right? Nobody forces him to tie shoes. Even though, because I have my machine, and because my friend, the neurosurgeon, put that thing in his brain, he has no alternative. So what what the case of the shoe-tying is supposed to show is that a person can be responsible for tying his shoes even though there's no alternative. Now, in my case, in Frankfurt's case, what cuts off the alternative is the fact that I'm sitting there with my finger over the button and I can stop him, though I don't. Now, another case. Um, signing a check. has nothing to do with that. Doesn't, no machines, no neurotransmitters, nothing in the brain, nothing at all. But, deciding to sign a check or not to sign a check, and God, knowing yesterday that he will sign the check, cuts off not signing the check. It's not a question about, there's nothing in his brain. There's no transmitter here. It's just, But it's, it's, it's a parallel building. It's a parallel structure because he decides to sign the check and the alternative is cut off. Now, in this case, it's cut off because of God's knowledge. In Frankfurt's case, is cut off because of the machine and my hand's over the button. The only point is that in both cases, what you're cutting off is the thing he doesn't do. And you don't interfere with the thing he does do. If you don't interfere with the thing that he does do, then it seems he's responsible for what he does. doesn't cutting off the thing he doesn't do mean Oh, well, take the case of the guy tying his shoes. I never pressed the button. In what way is he interfered with? Right, but aren't there cases when he when he would have chosen, thee, but he didn't because he was cut off? Correct. From... But I'm talking now about an analogy to the case of God's knowledge. Right, in so the case our, of God's, there God's knowledge, cases where, sure, you have free will and you did what God knew, but surely in your whole life, they, they oh, of been. course. But what what, are, what question are we investigating now? The question we're investigating is. Does God's foreknowledge contradict free will? If it contradicts it, there can't be any case that works. All I need is one case to work to show you there's no contradiction. I think what you have a problem with is whether you know it or not. And God definitely knows if you're responsible. Just like the guy in the the computer, he knows whether the guy is a fool or not. So in terms of knowing what actually happens God was in control does you yourself even in your lap in the day today, there's certain things you're not sure if you exercise the you or not it doesn't make a difference in your practice in the lab. God always knows that you live it, just like the God
1: person in the life yeah, there might be more to
0: say here but I'm, I'm I'm going to try to skirt it at the moment yeah isn't there a problem with, with talking about God's foreknowledge it seems like you're assuming that God before an action happened Knows that later on you're going to do something. If God, that seems to imply that God is part of time in some way. Okay, so were you here on Thursday, last Thursday? Oh, so last Thursday we talked about different solutions. We don't say that God's part of time. Well, we don't talk about God at all. We did that on Thursday. Now we're talking about something else. Uh, For those who've been here throughout, these all solutions all complement one another. The solution today is. If you'll tell me you can talk about God, here's another way to solve it. On Thursday, we said you can't talk about God. And now we're saying, even if you can talk about God, here's another way to solve it. There are even-if solutions. So you're ending, up, you're ending up with four solutions to the same problem. So this is uh, a la Frankfurt. I'm sure you would be horrified to know that his philosophy is being used this way. Uh, but but uh, I've been using it for about 15 years, and then paper came out in one of the philosophy journals on this about a year ago where he used it this way. And I think it's correct. Are you with me? Okay. Now, the last one is even a little more complicated, but it gives you a little more information about God and the world, so it's worth doing, I think. The question we didn't ask up until now is how does God know? He knows the future, but how does he know? Bertrand Russell, who was certainly no friend of religion, a famous atheist, Bertrand Russell said, this problem, the problem of God's foreknowledge, should not be used against religion. Because it has a simple solution. Imagine God peeking at the future. Think of God yesterday. How does he know what I do today? Because yesterday, he just gets a sneak preview. You know, he sort of takes a look. Parts the curtains, you know, says, oh, that's tomorrow's news. Oh, I see, good. In other words, he gets his information about the future by seeing the future. And if that's how he gets it, said Russell, then there's no contradiction. Okay, for Russell, it was short and sweet. Let's make it a little longer, and a little more in detail. The picture, I believe, that Rosage Gong and uh, Mikaedis Yitzhak both say this, although they say it very short. I think the idea is there. I'm choosing between A and B. I think I have the power to do A, I have the power to do B. It's up to me which one to choose. I could choose either one, and then I choose A. Now, According to this idea, God gets his knowledge that I choose A because I choose A. It's my choosing A that causes him to know. He's like an observer. He's like an observer. I do it, and my doing it causes him to know. Imagine for a moment that he's watching me, just like I can watch you. If I watch you do something, does that take away your power to do something else? Because I'm watching you? Clearly not. see beforehand, though. Ah, correct. But usually, if I watch you do something, I get the knowledge after you did it. In this case, we're talking about God knowing yesterday. Well, now we have to see how God gets it yesterday. Here's the picture. Imagine that this is time. And there are points of time. Different things happen at different points of time. Imagine here, I'm choosing between A and, and I choose A. Now, God is present everywhere in the world. Everywhere, every when. God permeates the world. As hard. puts it, there's no place empty of God. God fills all of the world. God is everywhere and everywhere. So, over here, where I'm choosing A, God's filling B and the world. So, of course, when I choose A, He's there. He's present at my choosing of A. That's step one. Step one is, He's present in me and around me when I choose A, and therefore, of course, He knows that I choose A. But, in addition to God filling the world, God also is above the world. Both actual. Now we're getting something we didn't say on Thursday. Both actual. There's also the sovets kolam that the is Zohar is our So in addition to God being present at all the points on the line, think of God above the line as well. Now, here I make my choice of A, and God is present and filling the world as I make that choice. So of course, at this point in time, He knows that I. Choose A, But then, because he's above the line, he, above the line, also knows that I choose it Outside of time. Outside of the creation. And that's step two. And then, since he knows it above time, outside of time, that knowledge is available to all times where he is, which are all times on the line. Step three is from the circle above the line. You project the knowledge down to all the times on the line, even times before when I make my choice. So there are three stages. Stage one: I make the choice, and he's there, so he knows. Stage two: God above the line, outside of time, knows. Stage three: Because it's the same God who is existing at all the points of the line, that knowledge is now available to all the points on the line. Before and after. Stuff is saying, no, you God gotten before you did it. What was the beginning the other thing? I, this, this answer shouldn't satisfy you because you're saying that there, right now there is no future. There is no future. This is what you're saying the other day, right? This, this shouldn't satisfy your own. I okay. well, okay, leave that back for a moment. I'll leave that back a moment okay. because haven't an answered that in a different discussion. Now, okay. um, what we have here. It's a case of my doing something now and the effect happening earlier. For many people, that is a mind boggling idea. How is it possible that I should do something today and the effect should be yesterday? Well, let me fill you in on the current state of thought about this matter. For 300 years, philosophy has been trying to prove that always the cause comes first and the effect comes second and it has not been successfully proved. No one has produced a convincing argument that the cause has to come first. Furthermore, in physics, there are cases where the physicists say the cause comes later than the effect. So says Richard Feynman, so says John Wheeler. These guys have Nobel Prizes in physics, so I guess they're not exactly dumb. And they say it actually happens. It's not only a possibility, it really happens. There are real cases of particle interactions where particles go backwards in time. Now, maybe that sounds funny, but then I guess nobody here is on the par with a, peach, a Nobel Prize in physics. And if they say it actually happens, I don't think we have to be embarrassed by using that idea. Indeed, we're a little better off than they are. They're talking about within the physical world. We're talking about a relationship to being God in the physical world, which is much freer what happens in the physical world. So, if uh, people are worried about my doing something today having an effect yesterday through the transcendence of God, I don't think that they have any intellectual grounds to stand on to be worried about this. So, according to this, the crucial idea is this if A causes B, B doesn't put any limitations on A. That's going backwards. God's knowledge is the effect of my choice, then his knowledge can't put any limitations on my choice. It's downstream from my choice. In cause and effect, it's downstream. If it's downstream, then it doesn't put any limitations on the choice that I make. It's a result of my choice. And therefore, I indeed have the freedom. I have the power to do B. There's no problem with contradicting God's knowledge yesterday because God's knowledge yesterday came from my choice. It's a result of my choice. If you thought it was there yesterday independently of me, and now I'm coming to make my choice, and the fact that history is there without my choice, and then I wonder, can I do B? Then you have the problem we started with. How can you have the power to do B? It contradicts God's knowledge of A. But if you say his knowledge of a is, if a is there, it's only because it's God's knowledge of A is only there yesterday, because I choose A today, then that knowledge is not going to limit my, my choice. Cause and effect, it's downstream. Downstream doesn't affect upstream. Yeah. Doesn't does this argument go maybe something against like our definition of God? Because, go ahead. Because it's, it's saying that God's knowledge depends on us? Yes. Yes. This is a good point, I think. Some people, theologically, might be disturbed by the idea that anything about God is a result of what we do. Let me point out to you that in general terms, this idea is inescapable. It's inescapable, and and, uh, Ramakal, among others, point this out explicitly. Think about reward and punishment. What does reward and punishment mean? It means, if I do this, God responds this way, and if I do that, God responds that way. The whole idea of reward and punishment puts God in a reactive mode, mode. He has set up the world in such a way that what he does depends upon what we do. So, to see, once you understand that God has set up the creation in at least one area where he's put himself in a reactive mode, so that to uh, describe him in a reactive mode in another area, I don't think is so terrible philosophically. You know, you've got to admit the category no matter what you do. Yeah? There's no problem with splitting God's mother. Why am I splitting it into pieces? He's looking into a future and then he takes it back to the and we know it's not just so one, so unified. You can kind of like splitting really this part and not. I, mean, I understand we have to do this because that's how we're looking at God. But I'm saying in terms of solutions to the question, um, wouldn't you say this is maybe the weakest of the solutions? Because he's kind of going against that like... The oneness of the knowledge of God, the other problems, the other solutions, do so on, have to get up against that. And today this would be a problem with a solution. I'm not sure. Um, on Thursday we talked about the idea that you can't describe God at all. Maimonides says the reason you can't describe God at all is because once you start describing you'll have a multi, you'll have a, a, a number of different descriptions and that breaks up God's unity any descriptions break up God's unity so if you're really committed to unity the only thing you can do is t- say you well, we can't talk about God at all right that's the solution we talked about then now we're t- saying even if you can talk about God we can solve it this way well, talking about God forces you into a number of descriptions. So now, if I break up different aspects of knowledge, I don't see that that's worse than any other multiplicity of descriptions that I have to use. So I don't think it's worse with knowledge than it is with anything else. I'm not convinced of it. Okay, now that means I gave you four solutions to this problem, and a problem for which we have four solutions to the problem over which we don't lose much sleep. You with me? Okay. There's one more problem which I want to. I don't get a chance to solve it today. This, uh, which is, I think, very important to practice applying the concept of God's uh, running the world to our lives. I stress to you that God's knowledge painted is passive. He just knows. He may not be doing anything, he's just observing the system from the outside. That's enough of a problem. Because he knew yesterday, so how could I have the power to do something different today? Now I want to talk about providence. Providence is what he does. Providence is God is active, causing, creating, manipulating. I want to see if there's a contradiction between God's action, his providence, and our free will and responsibility. Now, the idea of God's providence is really very controversial. In fact, There's a controversy concerning whether or not there's a controversy. Some people think that the medievals are split on fundamental aspects of providence. Others think that the medievals are not split on it. It's a very big, difficult issue. In order to cover all the bases, I will take the strongest concept of his providence, the most active, where God is doing the most, And we'll check and see whether in that case there's a contradiction between providence and free will. If when I take it to being doing the most, there's no contradiction, then of course if he does less, there'll be no contradiction. Here's the picture of the most. That every physical event is caused by God's will. Every physical event is caused directly by God's will. Every physical event—the flowing of water downstream, and the shining of the sun, and the trilling of the birds, the croaking of the frogs, every beat of every wing of every mosquito, and the motions of human bodies which are, after all, physical objects. The motion of a physical body is a physical event, just as much as a rock falling or a bird flying. Now, let's consider an action. Someone asks me for charity. I take a shekel out of my pocket and give it to him. I take a shekel out of my pocket, do I? Well, that requires muscles to contract and muscles to relax, my arm and fingers to move. According to this picture, God is doing all that. My body is a puppet on the end of strings, and God is pulling all the strings. He directly causes every physical event. So how can I be responsible for giving charity? My body is just a puppet on the string. Giving the charity means my body has to move in certain characteristic ways. So how can I be responsible for that? Yeah. It's not going to affect you free well it's given The fact that he the fact you can allow you to get to more parts of the trade, it doesn't affect the decision. If, charity, just, I mean, if you give charity, it just you it will physical act. It just it, it still doesn't affect any decision to make. Okay, I'm going in the, I'm going in that direction, but it doesn't yet solve the problem. Let me let me get there and I'll show you why it doesn't solve the problem. Now the answer to this problem comes in stages. And it's very important to see why the preliminary stages don't work. I might have to go all the way to the end. Step one. I said God's will directly causes every physical event. One word there, one word there should indicate to you that there's something else I'm not talking about. Physical. Right. That's a good guy. Physical. Why do I say physical event? If I say God's will causes every physical event, then I'm (laughs) implying that... There's some other realm of events. God has no control, Let's call it spiritual. Now be careful. What am I implying about the spiritual realm? He, has no no, he, doesn't. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't have he has full control. control. What do you say? Ah, good. Good. It implies there's another realm, which we'll call the spiritual realm, over which he doesn't exercise full control. In other words, in the physical world, his will blankets the world, covers the world, it causes everything. But that's only in the physical world. In the spiritual world, his will doesn't cause, cause cover everything, doesn't blanket the whole world. Could be some yes and some no. That's all you get is an implication. That in the spiritual world, some things his will doesn't cause. Now, that's step one. Step two. What are those things in the spiritual world that his will doesn't cause? Free decisions. For us, a decision is an activity of the soul. The soul is not a physical object. It's a spiritual object. And the free decisions of the soul, not everything in the soul, but the free decisions of the soul are events in the spiritual world that God's will doesn't cause. That's step two. You with me so far? Now it's, important to see that that does not solve the problem. Okay, so here I am, deciding to give charity or not to give charity. Okay? Why doesn't that solve the problem? Because you may not be able to carry it out in the physical service. Because you can't give charity in your soul. Only the body gives charity. And the body is a puppet on the end of a string that God is manipulating. And it's for the Giving of the charity that the person is supposed to be responsible. Not for the private shenanigans in his soul. You know, the private private meditations in his soul. Can you say God is a, is a proxy? You know, do you make the decision? And, and God says, he, I see he wants to do this. He's making this decision. Let me carry that. It's terrific. <laughs> you guys are terrific. That's, that's exactly the right answer. I think that's exactly the right answer. Let me just say what the wrong answer is, but then I'll come back and <laughs> elaborate on this. <laughs> I mean, somebody might think of the wrong answer later and not know that it's wrong. But uh, it's, uh, uh, so it's a pleasure. It's really a pleasure to, to teach under these conditions. Um, why not say you're right? The person makes his own decision in the soul, and then the decision in the soul causes the body to carry it out, and that's why it's responsible for what the body does. Why not say that? You have a black guy, yeah, I'm looking at a beard, you don't shout. Why, why not say that? Say it? Oh, not at all. Oh, no.
1: It's a good idea to go to the wrong one, huh? No, no.
0: no, what's wrong with saying that? not at all what he suggested. the soul that's controlling the strings. That's right. What was the problem? The problem was we're starting with the description of God, Providence. With the strongest possible description that he's causing the body to move. If I say the soul makes a decision and the soul causes the body to move, it's true it'll be responsible, but that's not the problem we started with. The problem was that God had to be causing the body to do what it does. He solved that by making God a proxy, and I, th- I think he said it exact- very well. God looks at your decision and causes the body to do what you decide. Almost always. Now, here's the official formulation. God has a policy. God has a policy of almost always causing the body to do what the soul decides. Almost always. Now, how does that help? It helps like this. He asks me for charity. And I think, should I give him a shekel or should I give him a shekel? Let's see. I have money in my charity account. So maybe I should give him a shekel. On the other hand, I'm saving up to buy the... Tokyo String Quartet performance of the Fourth Bartok Quartet. Which I heard on the radio the other day, and it's absolutely magnificent. Uh, <laughs> and uh, um, and I need that shekel, you know. I mean, I want to buy that that, that uh, CD. But but he needs the charity, and it's in my account, you know. It's not right to use charity money. I'll give charity next month. No, but but uh, I owe it this month on this month's account. So I go back and forth, and finally, I, in my soul, I say. I'll give give him the the charity. That's the end of my contribution. The decision has been made in the soul and that's the end of my contribution. Now, God, following his policy of almost always causing the body to do what the soul decides, pulls the strings and manipulates the body to give the shekel. Suppose I had decided not to give the charity. Then God, following his policy of almost always causing the body to do what the soul decides, would have caused the body not to get the check So the body will do what I decide almost always. That's enough. doesn't have to be that my decision causes the body to go. It's enough that I know that the body will do what I decide. That's enough for me to be responsible. That's how the proxy idea works. So in other words, I, uh God is the one who's causing all the events including the motions of my body and yet I'm responsible for what the body does because God is following this policy and of course I know he's following this policy. Yeah. And you say almost, I think because you're trying to say that if it weren't almost always, if it if were actually always then it would be as if we have full control. In, in the... No, no, good try. But uh, I, I think it's just a fact, you know. I'm sitting there in the concert and I have to sneeze. I say no. No, don't do this. <laughs> Come on, <please. laughs> I, I don't want to do this. You know, and then, bang, out it comes. You know, I said, what can I do? You know, I can <laughs> I, I decided, but uh, God said, you know, too bad for your decision. You know, uh, you're swimming, and you've over, overtired yourself, and you get a cramp. And you say... Move, <laughs> and it says, "Nope, I am not moving. I am not going. You know, I'm, I'm, your muscle is cramped. It doesn't go." We all experience doesn't this. Does not show that, that you say decision. When your soul makes decision, doesn't it show that decision is arbitrary. At what point say, you know, when you, if you're you are struggling and say, "Should I give it to?" Me? What, you know, and then you just you say, "Okay, here, me." At what point does God say, "Oh, He made the decision. Let, let me carry that, friend." At what point when, when I, I make the happen, decision? But at what point is it considered a fully formed decision? I mean. You know, you, you, sometimes you do something and you're still not sure, but you're still doing it. But anyway. sometimes you're not like that. So if you're not well, sure well, when you're doing it, then it, it may be arbitrary. It be. that yes. this is the point of the decision is arbitrary. It doesn't have be arbitrary. may be vague, but vague isn't arbitrary. That's black, white, and gray again. Yeah. Again, right. yeah, about when you said it almost always. Is that also like, say, someone who's like physically handicapped yeah, mentally that like they want to make a decision, but the body can't do it? that I think that in those cases, usually, the person doesn't make the decisions. In other words, after he tries two times, he learns that the body isn't going to do it, and it just gives up on it. Right. Um, but, uh, I, I don't know. There can be all sorts of cases that are hard to, hard to describe exactly, in the, but, but the vast majority of cases are the way they are. And um, I don't think we have any trouble with that. Uh, yeah? Uh, two things, first of all. Uh, that means that, that God has almost no control? I mean, it's, it's limiting in of the okay, this is very important now. There's a big difference between saying that God doesn't do and saying that God doesn't have power. Someone can have power and decide not to exercise it. So he's he of course has control. He decided not to exercise his control, correct? He doesn't lose power because he doesn't act. If God is constantly everywhere and everything and, and flowing through everything, then like, how, how could he just decide oh, yeah, hey, I'll just back out of this. Now you're going to limit him. You're going to say he can't decide where he wants to be where he doesn't want to be how he wants to be. Why should you limit him in that way? But if he's unlimited and he's everywhere, then so he can be infinitely flexible. You can't not be there. He's be there, there, but he's there only to this effect. I think you're ending up limiting him now, <laughs> not I. <laughs> and also, does that mean that the soul Basically, like, I mean, I can sit here looking at my hand right now, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to move it. And, and, I'm, and I decided, okay, move, and it has move. I mean. Well, was say? saying that can happen with cases with a cramped muscle, or with a, that does happen to people from time to time. But the I mean, think of your life. Think of your everyday life. You put on a shirt, you take off a shirt, you make yourself a cup of coffee, you dial a telephone. I you make a decision and the body goes, right? It's very, very rare for the body to not follow out what the, what the soul decides. That shows you that God has a policy of almost always causing the body to do what the... What the right? Why do I say policy? Because I want to avoid the short circuit of saying that the soul's decision really causes the body to move. God has a policy of causing it. It's his decision, so to speak, to cause to it to do what you decide. And uh, he's the middleman. He's the proxy, as he said. Yeah. Just talking about decisions, um, surely there are some decisions that are outside like moral, um, that aren't moral decisions, that are just like animal, or like just instinct, or like scratch, or to open the fridge. It's not a moral, or we feel we with those, and I, I must tell you, I hear this every time I go through this. Somewhere, this idea has come from that free will is only exercised when you're choosing between good and evil. But weenies or Cheerios for breakfast? <laughs> the suede chews or the leather You know, like, That's not really a free choice. Now, I don't, I don't understand why one would say that. And I don't understand what in the psychology of the process would lead you to say that. I know that when I'm making a decision... And I had two alternatives. I sort of weighed them up. And even if neither one is good or bad, okay, for the sake of the tape, I know the Chobas us, but everything has these decisions, these aspects, so I might not be aware of them. Still, I know I had two alternatives. I didn't just jump to one. I thought, I considered, and then I chose one. I don't see why this is any different from the most weighty decision of, of good and evil. It seems to me that the, the mechanism is, is exactly the same. Now, one last thing, since we've covered I'm so much Yeah. What Decision is made in the soul, then you have to say that it's even a some vain decision that is not good and evil. There has to be something that your soul is doing, or else it's just no, you can't call it decision anymore, you call it something else. Okay, the soul is doing it, so? But it's even though it's not good and evil, but it's still the soul. Yes, of course, of course. Oh, yes, absolutely. Sorry, Um I was just wondering, is there something that necessarily the uh, I don't know what you want to call the body or whatever it's thinking. Um, does that necessarily have to know what the soul has decided? I mean, if like your soul decides something and you don't know what it has decided? But um, and therefore, uh, you know, psychology has uh, has gone uh, into this wholesale. Uh, you have a whole un- unconscious life with wishes and decisions and beliefs and and, and commitments and priorities and uh, and you know private emails that you can't read, and all, that, all sorts of stuff. Uh, for me, I'm using the word decision as something which is on the basis of deliberation, considering the alternatives, weighing them up, and picking one. When you do something by habit, that's not by decision. You're on, as we say, automatic pilot. You know, it, it, The thing runs on its own. So I'm talking about decision that way. Are there other uses of decision, extended uses, which cover, maybe there are, but I'm not talking about them. Now, I haven't got time to solve this for you, but here's a problem to think about for tomorrow. I said that God almost always, has a policy of almost always causing the body to do what the soul decides. Why? Why is it that way? What would happen if he didn't have such a policy? Things weren't that uniform. He wouldn't almost always cause to do what what the soul decides. Is that possible? What would happen? What would the consequences be? Think about that for tomorrow. We'll, we'll kill that one <laughs> <laughs>